Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 65 with my special guest, former Pro Wrestling Illustrated and London Publishing magazine writer and current podcaster, Bob Smith. We'll get to Bob in just a second. Before we do, I have some Wonderful things and cherished things that I just wanted to share with you guys. This has been a big week for me as I'm recording this. First of all, I'd like to mention, in case you haven't heard it yet, you should check out episode 254 of the Stick to Wrestling podcast with John McAdam. I was the guest on that show. We had a great extemporaneous, spontaneous conversation, kind of like the ones that we often have on this very show. So check that one out. Uh, It's the episode that John posted on April 21st. Again, that's episode 254 of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I thought it went very well. I hope you agree. Also want to make mention, I have to make mention, of last weekend, as I'm recording this, the weekend of April 22nd, I had a blast with my daughter in Lansing, Michigan, being one of the recipients from the Library of Michigan of the 2022 Michigan Notable Books. That's right, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, was recognized as one of the Notable Books of Michigan for 2022 by the Library of Michigan. We spent the whole weekend in the Lansing area. We did all kinds of Sheik tourism, you might call it. We went to his former mansion, which is now a bed and breakfast in Williamston, Michigan. We visited his graveside. We went to the former offices of Big Time Wrestling in Williamston, Michigan. We got a fantastic tour of the grounds of the former Cobo Hall, now Huntington Place, by Tim Keenan, who, by the way, is going to be a guest coming up soon on this show I have to thank Tim for that. That was great. We even got to go into the bowels of the arena, walk in the footsteps of the Sheik. It was a truly wonderful weekend. If you're a member of the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, you will know that I've been posting many, many photos of that past weekend. So if you'd like to check out what I was up to, you can go to the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Become a member if you haven't already. We had a great time. I want to thank Mindy Babarskis of the Library of Michigan, also Randy Riley, who is the state librarian for the state of Michigan. It was truly an honor to accept the award, to be there, to be a part of the whole thing, and also to meet and talk to a lot of fans of this podcast. I'd like to say hello to all of them who came by and said hello, especially Tony Fainor. Tony, it was great meeting you. We need to talk some more, as well as everyone else that came over to say hello, to get a book signed, 
to talk about uh, my work. I even got to sign some copies of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It was pretty surreal. And I am going to be going back next month for some library talks that I'm doing at various libraries throughout Michigan. I'll be talking about that more. I've spoken about it before, but I'll be talking about it more in the weeks to come. Just had to share that with all of you. I'm kind of bursting with gratitude and honor and joy. It's a good time for me. And I'm very proud that the work that I put into this book has paid off as it's now the 2022 Wrestling Observer Award for Book of the Year. It received the Publisher's Weekly Starred Review and now a Michigan Notable Book of 2022 from the Library of Michigan. Okay, enough self-aggrandizement. Let's get to this week's conversation. Thank you for bearing with me for a few minutes there. Bob Smith is one of those names. If you were a reader of wrestling magazines in the 80s and 90s, you knew the name. I know I knew the name. And as I joke with him about here in the conversation that we had, it's not exactly a rare and unusual name. Um, It's a fairly common name, but it stood out in my mind right alongside Bill Apter, Craig Peters, Stu Sachs, all the greats of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler. It was a pleasure to speak to him. It's always a pleasure to speak to people from wrestling media like myself, especially the old school wrestling magazines. This was a fun conversation, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to bring on board somebody else whose work I was reading, sorry, Bob, whose work I was reading when I was in high school, uh, (laughs) going back to my my obsession (laughs) with the the London publishing wrestling magazines, the after mags, whatever you want to call that, going back to the early 90s. Um, He's been out of really the wrestling orbit for a long time now. But uh, he's been getting involved again, getting interested again. He is currently the host of the Outdated Wrestling Hour, which is a podcast that you should check out if you love outdated wrestling like we do on this show. And I'm talking about Pro Wrestling Illustrated writer Bob Smith. Bob, thanks for coming on Shut Up and Wrestle. How are you doing? Nice to meet you, sir. I just I I admire your work so much. I, I'm a late bloomer to uh, Blood and Fire, your book about the Sheik, but I, I ordered it about three weeks before the Observer Awards came out. And well, I, I sat down and I consumed it in like three nights. And <laughs> it's the book about the Sheik I've always wanted to read. It told me every little tidbit, uh, every little detail I could have ever wanted to read. So thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And and thank you for the compliment. I've just been overwhelmed lately because I didn't I really didn't realize like how many people felt that way, you know, with the book winning this award and everything. But I, but it really did turn into so much more than just the chic story, as you saw in the book. Like I just got as I was telling the story and doing the research, I became more and more interested in telling the whole story of of everything that was going on in the wrestling business in those years that was even remotely connected to the Sheik. It just became this vast network, you know? So I'm, I'm glad that you appreciated it. I don't know how long it took you. I don't know where you found your sources so many decades after this stuff happened. I mean, just phenomenal work, man. I, I don't know what to say other than from one writer to another, I, I'm almost jealous because that's, it's that good. You know, well, it's really good. Well, thank you. I remember, um, I think, Dave Meltzer, when they were talking about the awards on Wrestling Observer Radio, 
he talked about how he keeps going back and reading passages in it. And he mentioned something about how he has it in his kitchen or something like that. And when he sometimes when he's cooking dinner, he'll just pick (laughs) it up and start paging through it. And so now I have this image that'll never come out of my head of this idea that Dave Meltzer is in his kitchen cooking dinner and reading my book. So that's sort of like that's a high watermark right there. (laughs) Very proud. That, that. That's that's Thank a unique visual right there. Yeah. Um, also, I think he made a good point, though. It's a terrific book to read piecemeal. Like if you have any specific memories from a specific year or something like that, it's it's the book you want to look at because it's it's so chronologically perfect. And it's so I, I don't know what else to say. I don't want to keep gushing at you. But um, it, again, it's the chic book we all needed. That's for Thank sure. you. The only time I broke the chronology was when I had the chapter that was strictly devoted to Japan. Right. With that one, I kind of just ignored chronology and just focused on everything he did, mainly in all Japan for Baba in like the 70s, mainly the 70s and early 80s. But other than that, I I really follow, I tried to follow a strict chronology. But let's talk about your work here because that's why you're here. But I was just, and speaking of Sheik, because it connects to the Sheik, I was telling you just before and before I say this, actually, I should say that, you know, your name, that name, which is, you know, um, a pretty common name, but, but that name. Gee, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my father-in-law's name is Jim Smith. So I always. Oh, OK. Laugh. I see. I grew up in Brooklyn where everybody was Italian, Irish or Jewish. And I can guarantee I can tell you that there were no Bob Smiths that I knew when I was growing up. There there were a lot of Luigi Rosa Biancas, but there were no no Bob Smiths. But. Wow. Um, your name always stuck out in those days when I was first getting into the magazines, you know, I just, the names and people now have said this to me because of my writing in WWE magazine years ago, but the, the names just became so uh, burned into my brain, you know, not, and not even just, you know, stew snacks, uh, stew snacks, <laughs> stew snacks, delicious <laughs> stew sacks, you know, Craig Peters, Bill after, of course, Uh, You know, people like that, but also, you know, David Rosenbaum and Andy Rodriguez and Mm -hmm. and 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 you, Chris Bernuccia and you, Bob Smith. I mean, these were like the people who whose names I trusted, like, you know, these were the people that were that were giving me this window into professional wrestling beyond just the stuff that I saw on TV. So, you know, I was excited to find you many years later on social media because i i remembered you and and what i what i was saying to tie it back is just the other day coincidentally i was reading an article that you wrote in like the june or july issue of pro wrestling illustrated and it was about the sheik it was about hey the sheik is still around he's still wrestling and we can't believe it and he's ancient and it had pretty recent pictures of him. And I I actually had never come across the article before. So, you know, even when I was writing the book, so I just thought it was pretty cool and a total coincidence. And now you're here. Yeah. Um, I was fascinated with, at that point, I think we, we were talking in the, before we started to tape the show, I'd sent a photographer in around 89. He, we thought he was retired, semi-retired or whatever you want to call it. And I found out he's wrestling in a little town in Florida so I sent the photographer to, to shoot that. And then I didn't hear from him again for like another year or something like that. So he was such an enigma because he lived his gimmick, as you would put it, um, to the hilt. And 
it was very hard to find him, very hard to get any information on him. Uh, he kind of just would appear here and there. And it was, it was kind of an odd period in his career, especially a guy who once owned Detroit and Toronto to be that much of a vagabond, as I put it. Now, what were the years that you were at the, the, the London publishing okay. magazines? It, I'll tell you the story. I, I've been meaning to tell you this. Um, in 88. Say that again. Which, Sorry. I, was, I started in 1988. Ah, okay. And I believe I was there full time until 94. And I freelanced for them because I had gotten another job sometime into 95. Um, how I got that job was a amazing, wonderful fluke. I thought I was the perfect candidate for that job. It was GC London Publishing. And I was just moving into the New York area from upstate New York, where I'm from originally. And I'm reading the New York Times back then, if you can imagine, well, maybe you can imagine, there were six pages of editorial jobs in the New York Times. Yeah, if that's how play. I got my job at WWE. I, I, well, I, you know, okay. I saw it in 1999. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm combing through and I see this little tiny two-line ad. It says writer slash editor needed for sports entertainment mag. Write to box something something RVC New York. I went PWI. Mm-hmm. I knew they were published in Rockville Center and I knew what sports entertainment was. So I bam I I was the perfect candidate. I had won a journalism award for an interview I did with Mike Tyson when he turned 20. So I had a little boxing experience too. So I put together the best clips I could find and I got an interview and I got the job. And I, the day I got that, job, I said, this is a miracle. This came out of the blue. I was working for a, a music industry. Um, I had newspaper experience, but I had moved to New York and I had a job with a, a magazine called pro sound news. It's like audio cables magazine. You know, it was like your headphone cable. It was all about that stuff. So, I, but I kept firing resumes out, and I got the call, and I got the job, and uh, I knew I knew I blasted my way through the through the interview and through the uh, the um, I don't know how to put it. They they, they they make you do a test article. They okay. said they said here's Sergeant Slaughter. He's going to fight Colonel De Beers and Ladi Da. I said, oh boy, okay, <laughs> uh, this is for me because I was a big AWA fan. So I'm I'm fly. Oh, Wally Carbo. Bum, 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 bum. Gene DeRusha, blah, 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 blah. Gene Oakland. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I nailed it. I knew I nailed it when I, when I wrote the uh, introductory article, and uh, I worked my ass off for that company, man. I, I worked my way to managing editor, by the way, in year five, because Craig Peters was working on uh, our version of the WCW magazine at the time, and he needed time to devote to that. I love that magazine, by the way. I, I, I bought it, and, and I know it didn't last long, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. It, it, it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I don't know what it was. It, it seemed like, and I'll talk about this years later, you know, Craig can correct me. It seemed like we didn't get a whole lot of cooperation from WCW on that project, even though we were partnered with them. Well, they were in, must like, have been investing money because I also noticed at that time that PWI went all full color for a little while. So there yeah. had to be some of that Turner money coming in there to make that happen, I'm guessing. Well, all, all I know is that Craig busted his butt on that thing, and you know it was hard putting it together. I just remember it was hard. But since I was the new managing editor of PWI, my workload got – oh, my God. My workload got huge. I mean uh, – and, you know, in the years when I was with PWI, our sales were starting to dwindle a little bit. That was the beginning of the cracks in the foundation. It really was. Yeah. Even though we, we were successful – 
um, we saw numbers going down. So at that point, management's idea to make up for that was to put out more product. So they put out a whole mess more product. We did. I don't even remember Pro Wrestling Illustrated Weekly, which was a weekly newsletter, which was all nuts and bolts and news of the day and all that stuff. And I'm telling you, I worked hard. I really did. I, I and I'm not complaining. You know why? Because I'll tell you what. When they made me managing editor, the editing skills that I learned kept me in the business in the publishing business for the next like 30 years after that. I mean. I edited and edited and got better at it and better at it and better. By the time I left there, I could have edited for anybody. So I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel the same way. I had a similar experience because the managing editor was the position that I rose to also in WWE's publications. And I feel like that actually prepared me for so much later on too. I mean, I was there from 2000 to 2007 and in a lot of ways it was the most important job I ever had, you know, and it's just, it was like a training ground. Yeah, uh, it's and and that's good to have a a found a career foundation. Like I started a very small newspaper in my hometown, and um, you learn like when you go to cover a story, they throw a camera in your hand. So guess who ended up taking pictures for Pro Wrestling Illustrated? I did because I learned 400 speed black and white film and 1600 speed, and you know, it, yes, kids, it was film back then, not digital. You know, it seems archaic, but that's what it was. And I got really good at it and that I could take a camera into Madison Square Garden in a submarine sandwich bag and go shoot from the third tier. You remember how they blocked us from from covering? Yeah, they, of they course. Take the reporters off ringside and photographers. So uh, I did all that stuff. And uh, I, listen, I, I loved my job. I loved it. It was hard, but I loved it. And uh, I thought I did good work. I did write the first two PWI 500s which was, that's legendary because Stanley Weston almost called the cops on me. He thought somebody broke into the, uh, into our offices at two in the morning. I'm still typing away. Back you then. Wrote, you wrote the entire thing, all The 500. entire thing in 91 and 92. We break that up now into about like 10 different people, like all these different freelancers and stuff. I, I, I wind up doing about 10 or maybe 20, actually maybe 20 but I can't imagine writing the whole thing. Good. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, back then we had our Friday meetings and somebody came, I think Stu came up with, they did do a PWI 100 special issue. And I'm the adult that said, that's not enough wrestlers. Why don't we do 500 wrestlers? And he said, that's even better. Who's going to do this? Who has time? You're going to do it. I said, yeah, I'll do it. Doesn't sound so hard. Well, I got news for you. You know, it was, it was hard. It was hard just for the time. Honest to God, I, I used to watch every wrestling federation in the world. I would get tapes from all over the country and watch every one of them every single week. I I was living it. And I knew my stuff. And I sat down and it was just the time element. It wasn't the knowledge base. I had it all right here. And I'm pointing at my head. But it took forever. And, if, you know, the old copyographic editing machine and it was just it was just ancient equipment and no internet and the only research i could do was through my own notes and through videotape and all that sort of thing it was worth it though because every time somebody talks about the pwa 500 today i take a little sense of pride in that because people still refer to it and right from the beginning the wrestlers took it serious man i, I mean they still do they still do i think i think these days the wrestlers take it even more seriously than the, than the fans do. I think you're right about that. I remember talking to a couple guys going, you're ready to be lower this year. 
I go, wait a minute, hold it. Yeah, and we'll yeah. hear from it if we leave somebody out. Holy cow. The, people oh, have come yeah. at us on on Twitter, you know? Year two, we had a little bit of a, of a computer problem, and we we lost a few people in letter G, including Terry Gordy, and I think DDP got left out or something, and I heard about it. I, I mean, it was, um, it was you know, it, if it was today, it would be no problem because there's always backup saving stuff. And, you know, it's, it's so much easier with desktop publishing. Now. This predated desktop publishing. We just had a big server that we worked on and black and white, bluish screen. I mean, it, it was the old yeah. days. And um, I remember the but, tail end of that when I started on the WWE publications. Yeah, really, they were they were they were that the um, tail end of it. Yeah, just mm-hmm. and, uh, and just like we would still get um, we would still get galleys like on paper back from the oh, yeah. printers to look at. And before long, that was done. Like everything was online, even even the galleys and things were just completely online. Uh, that stuff started to change, but, and, and we called them blues because they were literally right. blue. It was blue all lines, blue. Some people call them. Yeah. Blue lines. Yeah. We used to call them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, those were the days, man. <laughs> yeah. It's so much easier now, at least in terms of word processing and the PDF is the greatest thing ever invented. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yeah, it is. No, I, it is. It, it's very much like the online version of that, you know, is, is what it is. But, um, so you invented the PWI 500. I oh, no, did I didn't invent that. it. I worked on it. Right, but I, you pitched the credit. idea. But you pitched the idea of a 500. You said it was going to be Stu, 100. Stu pitched the 100. Right. Stu, I, you, I want to give credit to Stu Sachs on that because, I, you know, the years have gone by, the decades have gone by. I read an article where he claimed to have come up with it, and I'm going to go by it. I'm going to stand by that. I think he came up with the concept, of, we'll put it that way. And I'm the idiot, so how about 500 instead of 100, which is, yeah, I'm an adult. It would have been so easy to do 100, you know? Stu, Stu was my first guest um, that I had for episode one. But what people should know, and I want to make this clear, because, you know, you can't take these things for granted these days with younger fans. And by younger, I mean, even if you're, even if you're 30 years old, uh, what people need to remember and if you know pro wrestling illustrated because it's still around today it's like one of the wrestling magazines left but what listeners got to understand is yes it was the premier london publishing magazine which is now kappa publishing owns it but it was one of i mean we put out currently nine issues of pro wrestling illustrated a year and that's up from six it had been six it's up to nine so that's nine magazines a year that we're putting out I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, with all the different publications you guys had, The Wrestler, Inside Wrestler, wrestling. Inside Wrestling, Sports Review Wrestling, Ben Strong Wrestling, <laughs> Wrestling Annual, Wrestling Yearbook, on and on. And I'm leaving with, all kinds of stuff up. Wrestling Superstars. Wrestling, wrestling Superstars. Matches, on and on and on and on and on. And like Would I you, said, at the, at the end when I was there, they were putting out more and more product. It would you say crazy. about would you say about 40 magazines a year maybe? Oh okay. yeah. Oh hell yeah. Yeah. 40. Yeah. 40. Can I ask you a question since you mentioned it? Maybe I'm dumb. Maybe I don't know this, but I've been wondering this for decades. Who in the hell is Ben Strong? I don't know. <laughs> You know, I love that though. Who is Ben those, Strong? Those 70s magazine Ben Strong series, right? And then there was uh Victory Sports. What was right. that? Right. What was what was TV sports? What was that? 
And Victory Sports is why WWF had to change the name of their magazine because they were originally calling it Victory Magazine. Victory Magazine, that's right. Which was the dumbest. I mean, that had to be on purpose. And apparently Stanley Weston threw a fit and they changed it to the most obvious name that they should have had, which is WWF Magazine. Well, Stanley had this way when he was, you know, hands on on the magazines of coming up with these little little things on the cover, Victory Sports Series and Ben Strong and, you know, TV sports. And it sounded official when you're a kid, didn't it? It, it sounds did. official. It did. You know, it's like you're it. thinking, I don't know what this is, but it sounds must official. be. Yeah, it must be important. It's yeah. got to be important. Absolutely so, right. And so you were one of the lucky ones, too, because I always tell every time I get any of the PWI people on here, I say the same thing, how how jealous I get, because, you know, nowadays it's really just I don't know if you are familiar with with the, the staff today or anything like that. But Kevin McIlvaney is the editor in chief. I actually actually bought a photo from PWI. I was doing a blog about four years ago and bought the rights to a photo okay. of Baron McElsick Luna from PWI and I, I dealt with him and he was just great about it. And he is. He's fantastic. And he's, you know, taken over from Stu and he's, he's really made his mark on the magazine in a positive way. But you know, the, the way it is now, you know, wrestling magazines are not what they used to be. Magazines are not what they used to be. And right. so the, as far as full-time in-office staff, it's just Kevin, mm-hmm. everyone else, including myself, all the writers and photographers, all the contributors are freelance, you know, contributing from home. And so you were one of those lucky ones who yep. got to work and play in that office. I mean, I've heard all the stories from Stu yeah. and Bill and the foosball tables and whatever the hell else. Oh, you guys yeah. Had. 55 Maple Avenue, Rockville Center, fifth floor with um, the cardboard uh, inner office championship belt that we all held for one point or another. I don't know if you mentioned that. Bill still has it. I've seen it. I'm sh- yes. I went to after Ali a few years ago and I saw the belt. He had the belt sitting there waiting for me and I laughed my ass off. It was just, and we did have a lot of fun. We, we were a bunch of cards and I, I, I consider myself still friends with everybody I ever worked with there. I, I had a great time. Um, the only reason I laughed, it was 1992 into 93. I'm shaking my head in, in sad memory here. Stanley Weston walks in. He goes, I'm selling the company. I'm going, oh, great. We're moving to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I had just bought property within walking distance of the offices. Oh, no. I bought a co-op apartment. I was a young guy at this point, late 20s, probably about no later than 30 at that point. And I figure I'm set for life. Pro Wrestling Illustrated is always going to be around. Ha, ha, ha. You know, magazines are always going to be around. So short-sighted. But anyway, at that point, I'm thinking, I'm set for life, so I'm buying property. You know, three or four years ago, I'm buying. I figured, I'm going to buy a, you know, a house. I'm going to get myself together. And Stanley walks in, and I'm selling to Nick Karabatz and Kappa Publishing in rural Pennsylvania. And I'm like, I'm doomed. It's all over. The minute Stanley walked in, I was gone. I had just bought that property. I wasn't in the financial wherewithal to move and pick up and move to Pennsylvania for an unsure future. And it was crushing. The minute he made that announcement, I was literally, I think I was the only one who really felt it at that point. And I was the second one out the door. I was gone the minute he said it. And I, I was, I knew I could not move. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes also- you just don't have the- Sometimes you don't have the financial wherewithal to do what you really want to do. I couldn't of do course. it. It was pre and it was pre-internet, pre-email. 
you know, it was impossible to, to work for them at that point. And I think so I got a job in Manhattan. Craig Peters, right? He left not long after that, too. I think he tried to stick around a little bit with well, the he moved people. To, he moved to Pennsylvania. Yeah, I didn't even make the move. I didn't even consider making the move. I I, I fished around as quickly as I could and got out of there. And I yeah. and here's, here's, what, here's my regret, too. I was sour over the whole thing in my heart. It, it, you know, not sour at anybody, but sour at the circumstance. So the day I got my new job, my new employer actually said, can you be at work on Monday? It was a Friday when they hired me. So I had to leave with virtually no notice. So I did. I grabbed five magazines and ran out of there. That's the only five magazines I have from all the years I have at PWI. See, and I, that, that, that's a cardinal mistake on my part. Well, I, um, and I've spoken to people that I used to work with at WWE, and they didn't have the foresight either. I kept, as they were released every month, I took home a copy of every single magazine that I contributed to at WWE, and I still have them right here in my storage mm-hmm. unit room over here. I have, I have at least one copy of every single WWE magazine, SmackDown magazine, Raw magazine, special monthly, whatever that I contributed to, and that also goes nowadays for the PWIs because and the Inside the Ropes magazines. I started contributing to Pro Wrestling Illustrated sporadically almost immediately after I left WWE. I um I left there in 2007. I was terminated in 2007. Left is a euphemism. I left there in 2007 and um, in the spring and by the fall, early fall, I was already writing for PWI. But it was every once in a while, a handful of things a year. But in the past three years now, really since the pandemic, a little more than three years, I've been on the regular staff where I'm contributing um, to every issue. But my relationship with them goes back like 15 years. And I, and again, I have every copy. And for me, and I'm sure you could relate to this, like, even though, you know, when I came to work for WWE as an adult, I came to understand, okay, this is, a vastly different enterprise. Like this is a, 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 at that time, you know, multi-million dollar company and this magazine, even though people made fun of it, it is by far the highest selling wrestling magazine there is. And more people read this WWF magazine than, than any other wrestling magazine, but still in my heart, (laughs) because I was this teenage fan, Pro Wrestling Illustrated to me was the gold standard. It was the gold standard. It was my dream in college that I want to go work there. You know, I, like I joke with people back before I understood what salary salaries were, you know, right. I want, I want, because I did okay at WWE better than I would have done at London, but yes. I always had that in my heart. Like I was such a mark for those, as they called them, the after mags that when I got the chance to do it, you know, as Crazy as it may sound, and maybe it doesn't sound crazy, I was so much more excited than than you know when I found out I got the job at WWE wow. magazine. I was just like PWI, oh my god, that's crazy. And I don't know if you knew, maybe this was this might have been after your time, but did you know Frank Vitucci, or was that a little bit later? Uh, he was the photo editor at PWI. He, he was like Bill's assistant. Basically. That was that must have been later because wh- when I worked there, it was. Uh... Bill Roy London yes. was his assistant then, and he went to WWE at that time, too. When, when we were sold, he got out of there. He, he's the one of us that went to WWE, Roy London, the photographer. And also, 
Al Bello, who went on to become a major sports photographer with Getty Images. I mean, he he. We also had on our staff at one point, and he wrote wrestling articles. You you won't believe this, Kostya Kennedy. I know. I remember the name. I, yeah, I and remember. He, now he's he's one of the top sports journalists in the world right now. I mean, he's, and also people always thought that the Peter King of London publishing was the same guy from sports illustrated. That is, that is not <laughs> no, the case, right? That is Dif- not the case. No. Different Peter King. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, so I, uh, there was the thing about the Peter Roy magazines. Uh, some wrestling magazines were wrestling fans trying to be editorial types. Our magazines were editorial people that were just happened to be wrestling fans. You know, there's a difference there. We all had backgrounds. I, I won, like I said, I won journalism awards before I, long before I joined PWI. And so did the other guys on the staff. They all worked for like Newsday and all these other publications. So it was a really learned bunch of guys. I mean, and the boxing staff, Steve Flarhood, I mean, my gosh, you know, yeah, it's the, like an encyclopedia. And that was something else, too. That was so fascinating to me back in those days in the time. Like the heyday of my reading of PWI was really, and and all those magazines was the early to mid nineties. That's when I really was reading the most by the, you know, in the eighties, I was a little young, like I was a WWF magazine reader. And I remember I picked up wrestling. Eye, as mm-hmm. I told Carmine Despirito, who I had here as a guest wrestling, Eye was an, was an eye opener. That was like one of the first, that was for me, that was like the observer in 1987, you know, like just blowing my 12 year old mind. But by the late nineties, I was already not really, as avid about the magazines anymore because I had found the internet like so many other people. And I I was getting into like all those early websites like Mikasa and Scoop Central and like all of the, I don't even remember, online onslaught, whatever, all those things, whatever they were called that were just giving, you know, who needs a magazine? I mean, that's what I thought back then. I've come to reconsider that over the years. But at the time I'm going, wow, I don't need to read these magazines anymore. Look at this and it's free and it's all here. You know, so I kind of got out of it, but but in in my heyday of reading it, man, I was buying almost everything you guys were putting out in those years, early to mid nineties. Even as an adult, I bought wrestling magazines before I got hired. I would buy them all the time. Uh, oh gosh, when I was a kid, I used to spend my fifty cent allowance on Wrestling World. We're going back to the seventies now. Sure, Wrestling World and Inside Wrestling and the Wrestler, and uh, I loved the Kitzer magazines. Yeah, because in the yeah. back. In the back of the case, they had that those agate pages full of results from all over the world, and I love that. Really tiny, tiny type, but you know, it was like fifteen pages of results. I thought it was Nirvana. I used to I, love. I, it. Yeah, I discovered all those after the fact, obviously. But and for me, and I've t- I've since even encountered some of the people that worked on it. But um, the the one for me that I, in hindsight, you know, I was too young for it, but that I love more than any other is probably the ring wrestling. Which yes, I, I, yeah. I talked to Tom Burke, who was one of the guys that worked on that. And I'm good friends with Tom. That magazine was in a class by itself because, you know, it treated wrestling, even at its most insane and goofy and silly, it treated it seriously. It covered it like a sport, which I know also was PWI's goal. But the but I don't think anyone did it the way the ring wrestling did. I mean, they no. they did it like it was the ring boxing. I mean, that's exactly. that's the level of quality and and the historical pieces. My God, that they would run the photos they had. That is to me the gold standard of all wrestling magazines. 
I agree with you. And I'll tell you why. I mean, you, we all know about 70s wrestling magazines with the bloody covers and the right. apartment house wrestling that Stanley came up with and uh, all the lurid stuff that they used to publish. But I will say this. The ring wrestling was the most sports-like of all the publications. They had the driest headlines, no blood on the covers, that kind of a Midwest feel, Midwest feel to the writing, you know, because it was where they were from. <laughs> right, but, yes. but there was something about it that made you feel like they took it serious, real serious. They took it more seriously than the promotions took it, I think. I agree, yeah. And, oh, uh, Kaiser wrote an editorial once. Is wrestling fixed? Right. They would they would do these things even in the ring wrestling that would almost acknowledge the fact that not all of it is on the level. I mean, they wouldn't come out in the open and just say the whole business is a work. But there would in the ring wrestling you would find references in articles to saying. Oh, this this was more of a this was not really a shooting match. This was more of an exhibition. And we'd love to see these guys in more of a shooting contest. Like like they would really kind of tilt the cards a little bit that sometimes it's a show, but they wouldn't fully. It's almost like they were trying to preserve their own credibility, but they wouldn't fully expose the business, you know? Right, right. Although I, I remember reading the agate pages and seeing that the executioners in 76 were Chuck O'Connor and Killer Kowalski. No yes. other magazine was publishing that. That's right. But they it, snuck it in, like I said, in the agate. You have to really look for it, you know? So and, it, was, it was. And the like, writing, oh, the writing. So the writing was so good, too. I mean, the writing was really good. I remember you talking about the Midwest style. I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. Um, I, I was paging through, it might have been when I was researching the ring. Um, the chic book and just as a random example i came across this article and i wish i had remembered you know what specific issue but uh it was about dory funk jr when he was like a rookie so this was like you know mid 60s maybe and the concept of the article and it's one of those articles that you know a lot of times they would probably fictionalize but the idea is that there was some heel wrestler some awful guy who had like hurt dory funk senior He'd injured him. He'd done something to him. And Dory Funk Jr. kind of like was on a mission to sort of avenge what happened to his dad, but not in some over-the-top way. But he wanted to get this guy in a match. He wanted to beat him. He wanted to maybe like take some liberties with him. And they would say that too. And then at the end of the story, he goes home to the Double Cross Ranch. He sits down with his dad and tells him like, oh, I want you to know, Dad, I took care of so-and-so, whoever it is. It's something like that. But the way that it is written, I can't even do it justice. It's just a great piece of sports writing. Like it's it, it goes beyond just wrestling magazine quality. Right. And right. I, I loved it so much that I photographed all the pages and I posted it on Twitter. And people were l- losing their minds over it because it was like something you'd read in – I don't know. Sports Illustrated. I mean, it was it was that well done. It was beautiful in the photography and everything in a way that, you know, you just wouldn't see later on. You know, you just wouldn't see it. it you know, the magazines were fun and, you know, the kind of the sordidness of those 70s wrestling magazines. Oh, yeah. But it was a you different type of magazine. Comic books and wrestling magazines are underrated for the quality of writing you can find when you least expect it. 
you know, especially the classic wrestling magazines, you know, I, I just, we had some writers that could write their butts. Dave Rosenbaum, I thought was a particularly good writer. Um, Craig Peters was an excellent writer. I mean, sometimes they come up with these scenarios. that was like, Holy smokes, the creativity, you know, they would take a bland. We, we would, you know what Peterborough I was like when I worked for it, you would take an inkling of a, something that, let's say NWA was doing and then just blow it up, blow it up past any point that they would have ever done it. And we just kind of embellish upon it and, and, and kind of exploit it. But we did it in an entertaining way that we knew, we knew what boundaries we could cross and which ones we couldn't. So, uh, but you know, I gave you a little latitude as a creative writer to be, uh, shall we say, uh, take a Liberty here and again with, well, with the characters and whatnot. That's one of the things I loved the most is that, um, you know, and maybe it, I don't know if it's sacrilege to say, but creative, the creative writing aspect of the job I loved. I mean, when I was at WWE, we had what was WWF magazine and we had Raw magazine when I got there. And Raw magazine was more like in the vein of a modern style, a modern take on the ring wrestling, let's say, mm-hmm. or um or wrestling, um, you know, kind of like behind the scenes. And we wanted to show the real lives of the wrestlers and talk a little bit more about wrestling history and things. It was for an older reader. And then we had WWF, which became WWE magazine, where it was more following the storylines on TV. And in that magazine, I mean, I loved writing for Raw because you got to do, quote unquote, serious writing. You got to do real interviews and things. But I also loved writing for WWE magazine because we got to have fun. We could invent scenarios, you know, as long as it was tied into what was going on on TV. And to tell you the truth, I've said this to more of you guys that I've had on here. We were very we were a lot of wrestling magazine fans and PWI fans and the wrestler and inside wrestling. And we were following you guys lead from the magazines we loved reading before we got there. We were like quoting fictional doctors we were doing all that stuff we were like opening with these completely fabricated vignettes and and things like that and just having a ball doing it just having a blast Mm -hmm. boy i'll tell you what when you know when they sold pwi i first thing i did you know what i did i fired off a resume to wwf sure never heard a peep and uh in subsequent years, I fired off resumes and never heard a peep. So I just, I don't know if they didn't like my work on TV or something. I, I don't know. But because uh, I, I was on TV a lot. Hmm. I ended up on Memphis with Jerry Lawler a couple of episodes. And I was on IWCCW doing color. And uh, here's, a, here's something you may not know about me. When Todd Gordon started Eastern Championship Wrestling, he had a couple of cards and he taped them with uh, Dick Graham. And, you know, the Philadelphia announcer doing right. play by play. And he, the very first ECW TV show I was the host of, along with Todd as the co host. And we shot, it was for, uh, I think, I don't know if it was a cable station or a UHF station, Channel 7 in Philadelphia. We did about six or seven episodes. Nobody's ever seen these things. They came out over the airwaves and disappeared. And I have videotapes of this stuff. Amazing. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realize I was I was literally the first host of an ECW TV program. You should try to get those out there, digitize them, put them you out see, there. Here's, yeah, but here's the problem, though. I, I know that Heyman, I guess, acquired the tape library 
or either Ty Gordon or Heyman. I don't know which one. I'm afraid to do that because I'm afraid WWE actually may own it. Well, WWE, I mean, they did buy all of ECW's assets, but I mean, if these tapes were not a part of those assets, I guess, unless they could make a retroactive claim that because they were copyright ECW, then that they belong to WWE now. Who knows? I'm not a lawyer. But, so. but yeah, but here's here's why I think they may own it. Because uh, when the WWE Network was on before they switched to Peacock, yeah, they had a section called um, – oh, gosh, what was it called? Um, I can't remember. A section of oddball stuff. And they had an ECW tape, a VHS tape dubbed for – and they had it with me calling two matches with Stately Wayne Manor from Wrestling World, one of the earliest Eastern Championship wrestling cards from the Chestnut Cabaret in Philadelphia. And I was on the WWE Network <laughs> calling Ivan Kolo versus Tommy Cairo and stuff like that. Now, I walked away from that gig thinking I sucked. I never saw a tape. I just get the feeling I wasn't doing well. So I stopped hmm. after about a month of doing this, two months. And I also did the first show, which was a studio show, which I just described to you. It was just wraparounds for stuff that they had taped you know, before. So I, you know, I had about two or three months of doing, I was their lead voice. Todd wanted me to make me the lead voice. I just didn't felt I had the right resonance. I didn't think I had the kind of broadcaster voice you need, you know, but I watched, I ended up watching these tapes in the W network. I went, wow, really wasn't that awful. <laughs> I think I might've been wrong. Todd couldn't understand why I walked away, but I said, nah, get, get somebody good. Make a long story short. It wasn't that much longer before ECW started to grow and I'm, managing editor typing away at my desk and Paul Heyman comes to visit. And our intern is Joe Bonsignor, Joey Stiles. And I see the two of them in our conference room, which had glass. You could see through the windows and they are talking and talking and talking. I said, I smell bread cooking. Something's <laughs> going to happen here. And before you know it, Joey Stiles was the Joey Stiles. No love on ECW. I did not know that Joey interned with you guys. That's yeah, so he even wrote some stuff for us. Yeah, he was a heel. He had a heel voice. I think he is, wrote heelish stuff. As he Joey also Stiles. he eventually later on, you know, after post ECW, he came to work for WWE. I remember when he right. he actually worked in the office. He he worked on because they they tried him a little bit in announcing. And what I had always heard, and if he hears this, you know, he could he could correct me if I'm wrong. But I'd always heard that. Kevin Dunn was not a big fan and didn't really like his work, uh, you know, but Kevin, you know, he had his peculiarities. It had to be the WWF style that he was used to, or he didn't like it. So I think right. what happened is that Joey wound up actually doing work on the website and being heavily involved on the website, uh, WWE.com. And actually at that time too, Michael Cole was heavily involved. So like he and, he and Joey had that connection of both being announcers and both being doing web stuff. But I remember at the time that I left and for years after he was still on staff on WWE.com. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I like Joe a lot. Joe was a great guy. I, I got along so famously with him both at the office. In fact, I came back to ECW a couple of years later just to say hello. And Todd put me up in a hotel room, I think, you know, for one of their big Philadelphia shows. And he puts me in the room with Joey Styles, and just because he knew we knew each other. And it was like a home week. Like we hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. He goes, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm just here. And I, I actually did a couple color commentaries on a couple of videotapes they did. I didn't think Heyman liked it. I don't think Heyman likes me either. 
I don't know why. Really? Yeah, I don't hmm. think Paul Heyman likes me. I just um, he said a couple of things to me that weren't overly complimentary. I may have said something on Jenna Rizzi's old radio show. I, I, I used to guest on that show all the time, too. And I think that I might have said something that rubbed them the wrong way. I didn't mean to. Or it was a matter of fact, I was managing editor when he would come visit our office a couple of times. I didn't have any time to kibitz. I had to just, you know what it's like, right? If you're managing but, editor, you do everything, including make coffee. I know, so, but sometimes the politics has to win out, and you know that's that's no, a, I never that's part of the like job that. too. That's part of the I mean, job we had, too. We had no maskers come up. I didn't have time to pose for a picture with them and all the other guys. You know, I, I just, I just was, my nose was to the grindstone. I didn't have time to waste. That's the way I looked at my job. Um, maybe I was wrong. You know, I know I was wrong. You know, well, what, what I found was sometimes, sometimes that kind of stuff helps more in the long term as opposed to the short term. People seeing your face and people, you know, shaking hands and all that. I actually, I learned that the hard way, I should say, at WWE. I really did. Mm -hmm. Because I started out when I got there being like what you were describing, particularly when I would go backstage, I would be all business. And in my head, I'm thinking these guys don't give a damn about me. I'm nobody. I'm I'm just nobody. I'm invisible. So I'm not going to insult them by like going over trying to talk to people. I'm just going to do my job and I'm going to interview. You know, I'm going to do what I got to do, do my work and get the heck out of there and not stay longer than I need to stay. Right. And what started happening was the word got back to the office and my boss, our publisher, Barry Werner, would, would sit me down. It wasn't just me. It was a couple of the new guys and would say, listen, we're hearing things from the road of people saying that the magazine guys are snobs, <laughs> that they're that they they're arrogant and they don't want to talk to anybody <laughs> and they're rude and not friendly. And, and we got this whole discussion about this is the etiquette. Of wrestling locker rooms, as I'm sure you know, you got to shake everybody's hand, you know, because it goes back to the carnival days when nobody trusted anybody. You got to constantly shake hands, say hello, introduce yourself to everybody. And I'm going, this is the last thing that I thought they would want me to do. I mean, why would they want? But apparently it was the exact opposite of what I thought. Everybody was going, who is this guy who thinks he's too good to come over and say hello? So from then on, let me tell you, being in the I don't know if it's still like that today with COVID and everything else, but. Being in those wrestling locker rooms, in those WWE locker rooms, it was just you're constantly shaking hands with the same people. Every mm -hmm. time every time I would see somebody, I would shake their hand, say hello, shake their hand, say hello, even if I already had done that, you know. And um, it actually went a long way. I have to say it went a long way. People started immediately trusting me more, um, getting to know me, liking me. It did make a big difference. I'm sure it did. You know, it's funny. I got along good in the in the backstage areas of the cards. I, 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 you know, why I would always shake a hand and refer to them as sir, and I admire your work, and especially when I did admire the work, like media Dory Funk or Harley Race or Abdullah the Butcher was kind to me. You know, it was it was like you know some guys. Funny story. I used to go cover uh, Joel Goodhart's shows in Philadelphia, and he had a special show one day. He says, "Bob, I want you to come to the show." I go, "Fine." He says, "Why don't you wear a tux?" So what? <laughs> he said, everybody ringside is going to wear a tux. I want you ringside. Wear a tux. Look, look like you're part of the show. He says, I'll reimburse you. Just go get a tux for the rental. So I rented a tux. So I'm backstage. Now, Joel and I were roughly the same height, same weight, same hair. I had long hair at that point and a beard. At one point, the main, the main event for this show was a steel cage match between Abdullah the Butcher and the Sheik. Oh, yes. I know that I, show. I feel I'm, 
I'm standing next to a wall and I feel an arm on my shoulder or hand on my shoulder. I turn around and it's a sheik. Oh, and he goes, Joel, what time is, you know, what time is ring? And went, oh shit. He thinks I'm Joel Goodhart. <laughs> <laughs> I got, but in years, years after that, I go, Oh my God, I got the sheik to talk to me. That was awesome. You know, it's like, he didn't talk to anybody. You know, right. so I, I'm, I'm like, wow. I said, no, wait, I think you think I'm Joel Goodhart. I'll go get Joel. You wait here. Oh, he goes, oh, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> but he thought I was Joel. And that's and the night I had, they had. Because I had the tux, you know, I was dressed for the part. And I guess he he didn't probably know Joel all that well. Hmm. So he thought I was him. I think that might have been the first show he did for him. Second one, I think. that was. A, I think that was the second of two Sheik Abdullah matches they ran oh, so, in Tri-State. So- so that was the cage match then. The, the second match, one was yeah. the cage one. Yeah. yeah, I I talked to Evan Ginsberg, who was actually I think he was at both, but he he was at the first one, and he talked about how it was like just magical. Like you had these people that were hardened wrestling fans, like smart fans, you know, just like absolutely freaked out, terrified, you know, running from the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher while yes. They- Tearing yeah. the building apart. You know, oh, just, God, yeah. And, they're, and mean, they're old men, older men, I should say, by that point. They're not They're not in their prime at all. And they are just wreaking absolute havoc in a way that was just beautiful to behold. It, w- it was art. It That was art. That really was. It was a mess, but it was art. And I'll, t- I'll tell you something, too. They, uh, uh, at that arena, I think it was called the Philadelphia Arena, uh, there was a stage with a curtain. And uh, I'm telling you, every wrestling journalist within 50, 35 states was there. I'd never saw anything like it. I met people for the first time, like uh, Evan and Don Liable and all these other people that I'd never met before. They were all there. So I'm I'm there, and here comes Abdullah. In the midst of running around the <laughs> arena, for some reason he goes back and he puts his hand on these. He's huffing for air, and I'm going, I'm getting the hell away from him. <laughs> <laughs> they were smacking people left and right. They did a work where uh, – one of the ECW employees looked like a sound man or something. And Abdullah took his head and rammed it into a concrete wall. And then I he stretched him out. Well, he, you know, everybody thought somebody turned to me, he goes, this is not good. People were buying this. Yeah. Somebody went, this is not good. Did you see what he did to that guy? Cause they, they thought he was just a worker and attendant. He actually, he turned out to be a manager on subsequent cards for Todd Gordon. But uh, the whole arena was getting ripped apart just people running for their lives all over the place. It was beautiful, man. It was, it was one of my favorite moments in indie wrestling ever. It was great. Yeah. And I know, um, in those days, i God, I think now that I think about it, that might've been, I don't think it was the last time that they wrestled each other, Sheik and Abdullah, but it was one of the last times. I think there was one more time. Cause I, ha- I was talking to Rob Van Dam because he wrote the forward to the book. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that when him and Sabu were kind of really starting out, they, I think they did a show in Vermont, like a couple of years after that, where Sheik was trying to get them exposure and he brought in Abdullah and I think they had their last match ever. And that might've been like 94 or so the last match they had against each other. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just veer off a little bit here. In 91, I was burnt out, and I took a wrestling vacation to Memphis. And I spent a week with the Memphis people and Jerry Lawler. I just felt like I, did, I never had been there. I want to go I want to go and see some cards. And who was working there but young Rob Stokowski, which was the Rob Van Dam, and yeah. Sabu. 
They were both working at Memphis at that point, probably working for 50 bucks a night or whatever it was. Yeah, Sheik, I think, had arranged that with, with Jared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he set yeah. that up, yeah. And I'll tell you what, there was an opening match card at one of the smaller – no, that was at the Pipkin building uh, on the main show. Back then, they weren't using Mid-South Coliseum for some reason. They had another building called the Pipkin building. And the opening match was Nightmare Danny Davis against Rob Stokowski, Rob the Dam, which to this day is the best opening match I have ever seen in my life. I walked into the locker room where I heard – I just went like this. That's the best opening match I've ever seen. I Just like I told you. And somebody <laughs> – I think Eddie Marlin said, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> you know, somebody said that to me. I mean, for and him I, to say that, that covers a lot of ground. You know what I, I mean? I, I went back like starstruck. I was like, that, that was phenomenal. So I go back to Rockville Center. And I talked to Stu Sachs. I said, we got to give this Rob Sikowski some publicity. So I call Rob and, you know, I said, what's the name of that maneuver you do where you kind of jump off the ropes with your legs spread? He goes, I don't know. I haven't given it a name. I haven't even thought about it yet. She says, I don't know what to call that. It's like a moonsault. Why don't we call that a split-legged moonsault? He says, yeah, okay, fine. I named that hold. <laughs> That's I awesome. don't know if Rob remembers this. I don't know if I heard Jim Ross say it years later. I'm like, I, I, I came up with that. I, and I'll bet nobody will agree with that. But I swear to God, I came up with that phrase. Well, I'm so going to I named a, a wrestling hole. I, I named a wrestling maneuver, my friend. So, because uh, his leg go. was split. You know, it was like, it was like a V. Boom. Yeah, I'm okay. going to go out on a limb and say that. Uh, not only would I not count on Rob remembering that, right? I would I wouldn't count on Rob re- remembering a whole lot of the 1990s, or the 2000s, or the 2010s. Rob, I love you, right? But uh, but I but oh. I believe you, and I don't you know I don't care if he remembers, and I don't care if I get credit for it. I thought he was one of the best young wrestlers I ever saw in my life. Him and Sabu both. Sabu flying all over the ring. I mean, they were phenomenal when they're young. Unbelievable. What? What I loved about Rob, and I talked to him about this when I had him on here, is, okay, so here's the thing. There's so many wrestlers today. He's one of those guys that that he gets copied so much. You know, he's on that short list. Like, he's so influential. Mm-hmm. But nobody does what he did in the way that he did it because, you know, it's like, I don't know. The best comparison I could make, I, I read Kurt Loder made this comparison once in, a, in, a, in in Rolling Stone, and I use it all the time, where he talked about all the metal bands that copied Led Zeppelin. But he's like, they didn't get all of Led Zeppelin. All they copied was the one aspect of yelling and screaming and loud guitars. But there was so much more to Led Zeppelin, the finesse and the different styles and things that they didn't bother to capture. And I feel that way about wrestlers like Rob. Now, Rob was, he was not some slight little cruiserweight looking guy. He's a solid, thick mm-hmm. human being. He is a tree trunk. He's a heavyweight. And he can fly and do all these things. But he also always had the sound fundamentals. He knew how to work. He knew how to sell. He knew how to how to put a match together rather than just getting your shit in, like they say, like he came from the old school still, you know, learning from Sheik and other people and was able to incorporate his innovations, but he actually really knew what he was doing in a way that not all, but so many of the copy copiers of Rob Van Dam do not do. And I think even he recognizes that. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I'm absolutely sure that's true. Um, 
you're right about the nuance. Uh, I mean, pe- people tend, wrestlers tend to take somebody else's style and, like you say, hone in on one aspect of it without looking at the total package of what makes the wrestler great. And I think you, you nailed that one. I, you know, it, it, so you can tell the ones that are derivative, the ones who are, uh, who will incorporate it properly into their style without being blatant about it. You know, right. Well, it's like it's like Stevie Ray Vaughan. There's a thousand guys that can play with like him, but it. nobody nobody plays like him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's it. And and I remember like Rob when he when Rob was breaking down to me what his training was like with Sabu and with Cheek, how. You know, they had to learn all the basic stuff and the psychology and also just really laying into each other. And like what they would do is whenever she would go inside or like go, I'm going to the bathroom or I'm going to go make a cup of coffee. They would go, okay, okay, like like two kids, you know, let's do all the, the flying stuff. You know, they'd go on the top ropes, do the moonsaults and flipping all over the place. And then she would come back. And and what they didn't realize was that she knew that they were doing that he, he and sometimes i think he was leaving on purpose you know but but it gave rob especially the sabu is special in a different way for different reasons but right. rob especially it gave him the ability to say i know how to do this well enough i know how to work i know how to do a match i don't need to do all this extra stuff but i know enough of how to work that i know how to deviate from that in a way that still makes sense and like he gets frustrated honestly when he i'm sure a lot of guys of his generation do cuz they think like what did i what did i create here because like he doesn't name names but he'll say he'll watch some matches sometimes and he'll go you know what are they doing like like they're not putting any thought into this they're just trying to get a pop do their stuff you know he'll he'll notoriously rail against like all the guys congregating together and catching somebody. There we go. All that kind of stuff. You said it as I was thinking it, you know, it's just so much of the, what's the word? Like just um, derivative and very choreographed kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And he, he, he gets frustrated watching that stuff because then a lot of those young guys will come to him when they see him and they'll say like, I learned everything from you, Rob. Like, Oh my God, you're the God. And I want to be just like you and this and that. And he's thinking like, you're not doing what I did. Like, maybe you think you are, but that's <laughs> not really, that's not really, it's not just about flipping and flying around. Like there's gotta be a reason for what you do. And you can't ever forget you're trying to win a match, you know, like you're actually trying, you have to make it look like this is a contest. You're trying to beat somebody. Like I know, um jr god bless him when he's on commentary sometimes on aew and it's not just him he'll go like isn't anybody going to try to win this match <laughs> like he'll actually mm-hmm. say that and i i J, uh, uh jerry lawler did that too when they had him they took him out of mothballs and they had him call a wwe match recently and he's like isn't anybody gonna gonna try to get a pin here or like how's this match gonna end and it's because the guys are so in the performance that they forget what the performance is sometimes that you have to make it look like you're trying to win. Like Rob told me, one of the things Sheik always stressed with him is anytime a guy is on his back on the mat, anytime you jump on him and you try to pin him, mm-hmm. you, you, you don't you don't try to do all this fancy stuff. You immediately try to pin that guy because that's what you would do if you were really trying to win this match. Yes, it's supposed to be a fight. Yeah, they're depicting a fight, not a performance. And I think that gets skewed these days to almost ridiculous heights. You know, I, I just 
I, you know, I don't want to sound like the old man in the room, but I'm the old man in the room. You know, and I've watched this stuff for 50 years and I've watched some, some of these things. There was just, there was just a, a video making the rounds on, you know, social media of this, what is it? Insane championship wrestling or something like that. Or it, That's the a, a female uh, wrestler. His female wrestler pushed another one off a balcony. Mm. Head first into a ring apron. I mean, it looked like she really got hurt. God. But the fans are going, holy shit, holy shit. And they're chortling. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And I'm thinking, so I, I'm, I'm scrolling down and I'm normal people are going, did she die? Is she dead? Right. It looked that bad. Right. The problem is the psychology these days is gone. And I, it bothers me that young wrestling fans look at wrestlers as they're going to risk you know, life and limb, so I can, so I can go. Ooh, right. I hate that's that. wrong. That's I, wrong. I really me. hate that. I hate, I hate that whole too. mentality because I really think it's encouraged by wrestling companies, and partly it's encouraged to disenfranchise the wrestlers and put them up against the wall because it's like the fans, like you said, there's this whole, um, I don't know what's the word for it, ethos or whatever that that's that's put out there. That's like these people are sacrificing their bodies for your entertainment. They're putting themselves, they deserve your respect because they are putting their bodies on the line to entertain you. But the flip side of that, what that creates is the expectation that that is what they should be doing. And if somebody wants to actually, God forbid, take care of their body or their opponent's body, or maybe look out for their own interests in an Mm -hmm. industry where no one else ever will, that right. those people are the bad guys. Those people are the the slackers, the unprofessional people. And I really think that's a very conscious thing on the part of promoters and wrestling companies to to kind of force the hand of wrestlers. Uh, you know, I'll say I said this on my own podcast. I'm going to say it here. Professional wrestlers are the greatest athletes on the face of the earth. I don't want to sound like an old wrestling guy, but I'm an old wrestling guy. I've seen the sacrifices they make just to be good enough to make $50 on an independent card. Not everybody can do that. It takes a special person to be a professional wrestler. And to think that they take the risks that they take now pisses me off. I don't think it's necessary just to make a bunch of people, 500 people in a rec room somewhere go, ooh, holy shit, holy shit. Sorry, man. I, I just think it's it, they're too risky. They're, on every major pay-per-view, I see three risks taken. It bothers well, me. Well, because I also think now we're at a point where that mentality – has gone on for so long. I, I, I guess yeah. it started. I guess it started really getting bad in the late nineties. Like, because you never heard that kind of stuff when I was a wrestling fan in the eighties. That whole concept of the wrestlers are sacrificing their bodies. Nobody ever talked that way. Wrestlers never did promos where they talked to the fans about you know their passion for the business, even if they felt it, that wasn't part of the wrestling product. Like, you know, uh, outlaw Ron Bass wasn't getting out there and talking about his passion for this, <laughs> for this industry and how he's putting his body on the line. He was talking about Brutus beefcake. You stole my whip and I'm going to kick your ass. You, you know what I mean? Like it was, right. it, it, they didn't set up that mentality, but now it's become internalized. I think by a, a younger generation of wrestler where they think, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what wrestling is. Um, and, you know, Jim Cornette has has the line, which I think 
sums it up so well. He said it years ago where I think you know what I'm thinking of, which is I like, know what you're thinking, man. you know, in the old days, they would try to do as little as possible. They were trying to protect themselves and people believed every moment of it or a lot of people did or they were able to invest in it. And nowadays, these guys go balls to the wall and do everything, and nobody believes it's real. That's like, exactly right. That's it. That's it. I was thinking that I was thinking it before you said it, my friend. I, I'm serious because I think that's the greatest quote about modern versus old traditional style pro wrestling that anybody's ever said because it's exactly true. People point and laugh at, at people flying out of a ring and landing on a table now. <laughs> Whereas before, everybody would get upset, stand up. The whole crowd would stand up and worry about the wrestler that just hit the table. Right. There That's were things the that go on that there are things that go on that in the in the early in the days when I first started watching wrestling, it would have stopped the show. You know, yeah. even in storyline, it would have stopped the show. You right. would have had like you would have had like the the officials coming out. You would have had referees, the, the announcers getting all like sober and serious. They wouldn't have stopped talking about it for the whole show. And now it's just another move, you know, or, or just another angle They're, uh, among like 15 different angles that they've crammed into the show. You know, I grew up near, near Albany, New York, and I used to go to the Washington Avenue Armory to watch my WWF wrestling. And one day it was a match between uh, Tony Guerrilla versus Victor Rivera, who was a heel at that point. And at one point, Victor Rivera goes out of the ring and picks up a chair and is walking to the ring with it. And the entire place got to his feet screaming, make him put that chair down. Make right. him put the chair down, ref. Stop him. Stop him. Tony Greer obviously got control of the chair. Smashes it over the other guy. Rivera's head. Nobody just, but everybody was physically, you know, worried about the physical well-being of Tony Guerrilla at that point. Now it's right. hit him again. Right. They, well, they'd be chanting for the chair now. And, right. and sometimes I don't even think it matters who's the heel and who's the face. They just want to see the carnage. Uh, it, it doesn't even matter. But, but yeah, they, there was more of a, I don't know, an emotional investment as, as people talk so much. Uh, have talked so much about it, but it, but it was true. And, and people would have a reaction like that, like a, a much more kind of serious reaction to, to those kind of things than they do today. And, and it, and it was treated more like, I don't know. Now you just have referees that just stand there and just watch people do stuff and, and nothing happens, or you'll have an angle where, you know, these guys are just beating up this guy for like 10 minutes and no one's doing anything. Nobody comes out. The announcers don't really act like it's that big of a deal. They just kind of move on to the next segment. There's no sense of like, well, are there going to be repercussions from this? Uh, does this poor guy have any friends that might mm -hmm. come out and help him? Or are the officials coming out? Like, what is this? You know, remember at the old days when the objective was to pin your opponent's shoulders to the mat and not obliterate him. <laughs> right. That, that too. Yeah. That's the difference. That's the entire difference in today's wrestling. Like, you know, a, a, could you imagine a normal match ending up, you know, in a small cradle and that's the end of it now? Can right. you imagine that? I show people. No, nobody's going to you know, do that. Harley Race's finisher was a suplex, you know? Right. When the Terry Funk beat him for the world title with, um, or was it Har Harley beat Terry with us with like uh, an Indian death lock. I think it was either Harley beating Terry or Terry beating Har or, uh, because well, Terry beat Jack Briscoe, so it must have been Harley beating Terry. Harley beating Terry, yeah. And like, and you know, I I'll watch, and it's a 
great old match, but the fantastic match, the Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor match from the 60s. It's phenomenal. But the finish by our modern standards is very ordinary. It's basically the idea behind the the finish. It was two out of three falls, but the finish is essentially Pat O'Connor just essentially gets so tired and worn out that he can't kick out anymore, you know, and 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 Buddy covers him a lateral press. There isn't some kind of devastating like move where I'm going to like break you in half. He covers him because he sees that he's exhausted and he gets the three count, you know, but that's very believable. You know what I mean? Well, when, when we can can go a little closer, when Rick Steamboat, excuse me, Rick Steamboat beat Ric Flair for the NWA world title after like 20 great minutes of wrestling, small package, one, two, three. Well, Kerry beat Flair with a, with a backslide, right? Yeah. Could you imagine that now? No. No, no. And it, I mean, it, when it happens, it's un, like it makes headlines. Like I remember in NXT, they had a women's match where one one woman pinned the other one after a superplex. OK, you know, the old cowboy Bob Orton finisher from the second rope. And right. that was such a noteworthy thing that that it was like it made the rounds on Twitter. Like, isn't this like I would like to see more of this, like like a, a finisher where. It's just a normal finisher and somebody gets pinned and it doesn't have to feel like you, you know, you killed somebody. But that's the just the one upsmanship of of just generations of matches where you're constantly trying to one up what's been done before. And then you get to the point where we're at now, where sometimes in matches I go like, what is he going to shoot the guy? Like, what, what the heck do they need to do? Because, like, realistically, mm-hmm. you know, hypothetically. If you were to actually suplex somebody vertically, or if they, or snap, <laughs> you know, or or body slam somebody, which I don't even know if you could do those moves without cooperation, but let's say you did, um, there's a really good chance that you could pin somebody after a thing like that because it would That's knock fun. it would knock the wind right out of them, especially mm-hmm. if you did it unexpectedly, you know, and they were didn't see it coming. I know I sound like a total ridiculous mark when I make these these scenarios, but. That's the way they were thinking back then when they were doing the finishes is they were thinking, we have to make sure this is believable. Like if if you actually did this to somebody, we can't have the guy kick out because the fans are going to go, well, this is baloney. Like, how do you kick out of that? You know, whereas now they don't really care about that. They don't care about fans coming to that conclusion. You'll have trip, you know, Triple H will not him anymore, but Seth Rollins or whoever hit somebody in the head with a with a, a a sledgehammer and and the guy will kick out you know and 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 you're going okay um yeah i don't know if this is on the level <laughs> you know what i mean i think you 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 approach a good point there though because it's like instead of wondering who's going to win you know just who who's going to win and you have a favorite and you want to see the favorite win now i think people look at a match without having a favorite in the match and just want to see the moves Yes. So they're more interested in what moves will they do and not who wins. They're cheering for the match as a performance. Performance you know, like art, yeah. The whole thing yeah. with this is awesome and all that stuff. Like it doesn't really matter, even though they have their favorites, right? But but the winning and losing isn't as important as is this a good match? Is this match gonna entertain me? And you know, fans always wanted to be entertained by matches, but I don't think they were as as self-aware as they are now that this match is a piece of entertainment that these guys are doing to entertain me. And that's all, you know, completely out in the open now, you know, they're cheering for either the match or 
they'll be cheering for the promotion, you know, instead of yeah. pu- pulling for any one particular wrestler or anything like that. Yeah, it's true. I remember and, the days when yeah. you'd watch a wrestling TV show, they wouldn't even mention the name of the promotion. Right, right. Remember no, that's that? true. Yeah, sure. Um, if you watch old WWF stuff, you know, I mean, they never say it. In fact, the only person who would say it a lot, and it's because I guess it's his company, would be Vince himself right. on, on those old broadcasts. But very often it was just wrestling. I mean, they, they didn't feel the need to. And that, this is also partly because they weren't competing with anybody in their regions and territories. So right. they didn't feel the need to brand the product as much as they would later on because, you um, they were the only show in town. So who cares? And, it, w- well, I think secondarily too, that they knew that they did have other, you know, f- organizations around the country. So by not drawing attention to that one name, here's our world champion. And you believe it was a world champion because the only person you saw. Right. You know? So I think it, 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 both, both kind of apply with that. I think, you know, it's like, what make people think that this is the world champion here. Even if, you know, the biggest show we draw is 50 people. Here's our world. You know, Al Tomko was a world champion in Canada, you know? Yes. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, forget that anybody else exists, make them focus on our product and we'll take off from there. And I think that's, that was the way they looked at it. Trying well, to be got- provincial, I guess. We've gone a little over, but that it's just such Oops. a fascinating conversation. So many great things to talk about. But but before I wrap it up, though, I wanted to give you a chance to talk, to talk about the the outdated um, wrestling hour. To let people yes, know I, about it and where to find it. You know. Okay. Um, first of all, I, I want to say I'm very proud to be in an Arcadian Vanguard podcast. I'm the biggest fan of Brian Last and. Uh, Jim Cornette, obviously, and a lot of the shows here. Now your show, obviously, and uh, I'm I'm proud to be here just for that. You know, it's my first words on on this particular company, so I feel psyched. So That's I started great. this podcast in January. Um, I'm proud to say that we the ratings are actually chartable. You know, I look at chartable, and our, you know, we 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 did top forty at one point, uh, which nice. is phenomenal because I'm my own producer and everything else. And I think it's a really unique podcast. It's short and it's digestible. It's usually between a half an hour and 50 minutes, even though it's called out. It, uh, we have a comedy opening at the end of uh, at the beginning of every, we have a little shtick we do for 30 seconds at the beginning of every show. We go, we have guests on every show and we go from topic to topic to topic really, really quickly. And the results and the, the reviews we've gotten have been far beyond my expectations. I mean, if I never get any more successful than what I'm doing right now, I kicked ass. It's, it's been that good. I'm telling you, I monetize in a month. I mean, every, everything has just been really, really good. Tell Brian to listen to it. I'm anxious to get, and also tell him he was right. Okay. He'll know what I mean by that. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll let All him right. know. And, and, and thanks for doing this. And I encourage people to check out your show and, and thanks for doing this show. This, well, this you're coming on my show, right? You're going to do of my course. show, right? Yes. No, I am. I can't wait. Well, we can just kind of pick this conversation up and continue it from, from where yeah, we I got a lot of questions for you, too, because you're you know, I consider you're now a kindred spirit because you are we've kind of done a lot of the same things. But you've taken it a step further with your books. I, I can't. I can't express my admiration enough for this for the book, The Sheik uh, Blood and Fire. It is something everybody needs on their bookshelf. And I'm not saying that to blow smoke at you. It was a life changer for me at my old age. It's the book I always wanted to read about the Sheik. There's not a bad page in it. I'm telling you, folks, A number one, and it deserves the award. It just won from the Wrestling Observer. So congratulations on that. Thank you, Bob. And on, on that extremely ego-stroking and flattering note, <laughs> we will 
bring this conversation to an end. This has been so great. I, I appreciate it. And I thank you so much. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Bob Smith, another in the list of wrestling magazine luminaries that we have had as guests here on Shut Up and Wrestle. So, Bob, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Of course, I want to make mention that I was also a guest on Bob's show, The Outdated Wrestling Hour. So uh, you should also check that out. We had a great conversation there, too. Check out his show as well. And keep listening to this show, Shut Up and Wrestle. Next week, we've got an interesting guest for episode 66. Old school wrestling fans are going to love this because my guest is Gennard Soli, the son of Gordon Soli, the dean of wrestling announcers. That was fantastic. Gennard reached out to me, and I'm glad that we could make that conversation happen. And I think you're going to love it. That's next week. Keep listening as we barrel along. Future guests on Shut Up and Wrestle include the author Steve Anderson, who worked with Bobby the Brain Heenan on Bobby's autobiography and another book that Bobby wrote as well. Steve's got some great memories of Bobby and also his time working with Gorilla Monsoon. I've got a special WWF-related guest, a behind-the-scenes guest that I've got in the works that I don't want to reveal just yet. Also, hopefully in the weeks to come here on Shut Up and Wrestle, Keep listening. You can find this show in so many different places. There's our website, suawpod.com. Of course, you can get it wherever you get any of your favorite podcasts. That means Podbean, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the usual suspects. That's where you will find us. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, the Facebook group. Join it if you have not. Also, please continue to check out the Wrestling News every morning from Arcadia and Vanguard, your 10 minutes of Wrestling News Zen. Do be sure to subscribe and listen at thewrestlingnews.com. It's also available on YouTube at the Arcadia and Vanguard YouTube page. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Chic, my award-winning book, is available on Amazon and other online and brick-and-mortar retailers, in digital form, of course, that's online only, in print form, as well as audiobook form. It's available on Audible. You can get it and listen to it there. If you're interested in picking up the magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated is available at pwi-online.com. And as well, I should mention that I am the co-host of the Pro Wrestling Illustrated podcast with Al Castle, so give that a listen as well. And Inside the Ropes magazine, you can find at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon reminding you that a man is not complete until he's married. And then he's finished. I kid, Mrs. Solomon. I kid, I kid. Believe me, I kid. I love you. And I love all of you listeners, too. So long, wrestling fans. 